Welcome back to the Airing Now the Jew. I am Aaron Flam, and today we are drawn even deeper into the mind of Alexander Bard. Thank you for supporting this podcast on Patreon. You can also swish us at 076-894-3737. 076-894-3737. The Swedish election is tomorrow. Last night was the final debate on Swedish state television. After the debate, our supposedly objective state media renounced a statement made by the party leader for the Sweden Democrats. What he said is immaterial. Our state media revealed last night, beyond any reason of a doubt, that they are hopelessly biased. Come next episode, the election will be over and I will be able to give you a more comprehensive report. And now, Alexander Bard. Enjoy. And welcome back to Jewish Irish Freundschaft. The Jew and the Aryan. <laughs> the Jew and the Aryan. Uh, the podcast with me, uh, Aaron Flam and Alexander Bard. And I realized that I forgot to introduce myself in the first episode. And by now, this is probably episode three. So I thought I'd start by introducing myself. My name is Aaron Flam. I'm a Swedish comedian and writer. And uh, I have, uh, during my brief career, uh, attained some disrepute in Sweden. Yes. And that pretty much sums me up, doesn't it? Well, you behave like a Jewish Viking. And Swedes are not Jewish and they are not Vikings anymore, right? No, that's right. So I'd like to hear your difference between a Viking and contemporary Swedish man or woman. Well, that's because... Because we're all watching Vikings now, right? We're all watching Vikings on Netflix. So. And it's brilliant. And yeah. the, the thing with Vikings, the series Vikings, uh, directed by Johan Renk, mm -hmm. I, I believe, uh, Stakabo, a former Swedish pop star like yourself. Uh, now uh, I signed him even. You did? <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. So anyway, so the, the, the series Vikings is actually the third part of the real Swedish national epos. E epos. Mm -hmm. Völsunga Sagan is the name. The... And in German, that would be the Nibelungen Ringen Lied. It mm -hmm. is the third part of the so story of Siegfried and his sword Gram, which in Swedish he was called Sigurd. And uh, he fought dragons and such stuff that heroes normally do mm -hmm. and gets the princess and everything. And then, <clears throat> and he is, I think, that's the second part of the Nibelungen Ringen Lied. The first part is a creation myth, the second part is a hero adventure adventure uh, where Sigurd or Siegfried is, uh, he's partly a god. He's not exactly human. He's more of a Gilgamesh. You don't know. It's in between sort of thing. But then Völsunga Sagan, the Viking epos on HBO, that is the third part of the saga where the kings and queens are now earthbound. They are human and they're fighting for control of Sweden. And uh, it's funny that you brought up Vikings because this is part of the what I refer to as the giant hole in Swedish cult culture. If you ask a young Swedish man today, uh, do you know what Völsunga Sagan is? Then he has no idea. He doesn't mm -hmm. know. It's and if he knows, then probably he's accused of being a white supremacist. Yes. That which is incredibly tragic. It's just like, if, uh, you know, reclaiming your roots and reading them with fresh eyes is, is makes, means you're some kind of, you know, a, uh, a racist or whatever. It's just ridiculous. It's a form of self-hatred that's completely unacceptable. You know, it's rather, I would rather say it's the other way around. If I find a young man or woman in Sweden today who wants to find out about the Vikings and their history, I find it as a form of strength because then they are at least interested in creating a mythology about themselves. Yes. And that is actually the origin of self-confidence. 
And the dangerous thing with society is not people who believe in themselves. That's not dangerous at all. So you need a story that yeah, you can the, believe the, the, in, that you can apply th- to yourself. Yeah, the dangerous thing is people who are, who are actually nurtured by self-hatred without knowing it. Because that's then turning to form of narcissism as a compensation behavior, and that gets really, really dangerous. So I'm all for actually sweets reclaiming the Viking mythology. Then maybe also it would be interesting to find out what's the difference here between the fairy tale and the actual facts of what happened. Well, as far as I know, uh, the Vikings were a pagan people. Uh, they were pretty much on the seas. They wanted to rape, pillage, and trade. So mm-hmm. if they uh, if they found a village in Poland or Germany that was bigger than their boats and had more warriors, then they would trade. And if they found small villages, they would rape and pillage, mm-hmm. basically bringing home slaves and gold. Now, this might not be the proudest history in this day and age, but still it's better than the secular shit that the social democrats have replaced the Völsunga saga with. Because this is what happens after, after the Second World War in Sweden, I think, that we, we deny this heritage. Mm-hmm. We completely silence it. It is struck from the records. Mm-hmm. And we have a new national myth. The national myth that we're neutral and good. And, not, and modern. And modern. And not that we're an old pagan heathen people who likes to kill for pleasure. Um, but there was a strength in the, in the Vikings. And that's when I, as a not-so-young man anymore, but I'm closing in on 40 here, but... But when I look around my country and I've grown up here in Sweden, there is nothing that a young Swedish man can really be proud of. We don't have any history. We don't look to history at all. We don't mm-hmm. teach history. And if we teach history, it's this false history where we have forgotten a lot uh, about what this nation actually was once. And this is the ultimate form of cultural castration. It's to teach somebody you have nothing to be proud of from your history. And you then also learn to disrespect your lineage. So you start disrespecting your father, your grandfather, and whatever lineage you come from, or, or for that matter, on the female side too. And this hurts men more than it hurts women, because for men, lineage is incredibly important. It's a form of guidance on where they should arrive, what they should do with their lives. And it's, it's just completely unacceptable. You arrive in, in this idea that Sweden is very cultured and cultivated and advanced and a role model for other cultures at the same time as you're preaching we should also hate our own history. So what it then does is that it creates this idea that we are now suddenly noble, but we weren't noble before, which of course blatantly untrue. Yes. We're the same people. We're exactly the same people we were 500 years ago. We've just replaced the open aggression of the Vikings with the passive aggression that is dominating Swedish culture today, which is far more harmful yes, because it, it doesn't admit that it is aggressive. Precisely. And when you, as a young man, you, you look around this country and you, so you're, there's nothing to be proud of in your history. There's... Nothing in your sex to be proud of because the the male sex doesn't really even exist anymore in Sweden. Mm. I mean, we've uh, for I don't know how we did it, but we finally got nature to give way to feminist ideology because now we've raised generations of men without balls. Mm-hmm. How about that? Rest of the world, take it. Mm. Yeah, Rousseau is big with the Swedes, and they don't even know it. And Rousseau sneaked in, especially with the Swedish left in the 1970s, because the Swedish left was as often in Sweden full of sort of very fashionable, grandiose people, you know, who who thought highly of themselves, but didn't really bother to read or study. I mean, at least the left in Europe was interested in a sort of leftist discourse. It was the interpretation of Karl Marx, 
hopefully also the Frankfurt School, which were both critics of Karl Marx and also the heritage of Karl Marx. They also included Freud in their analysis. And you would then have to read somebody like Louis Althusser, for example, who was like dominant among Marxists in the 1960s and the 1970s. The problem in Sweden is we, we never had that intellectual discourse in Sweden at all. Leftism was just like anything else in Sweden, a fad. Yes, but it was a way also, to look sexy when you were young in the late 60s and the 1970s. You know, if you were a student and you were a rebel in Sweden, you would, you would just try to look sexy and get laid. It was a costume. And that opened Sweden, ironically, for Maoism, of all things. Yes, because Sweden we had a big Maoist. Uh, a big one. And we have to understand this, this made the sort of populist leftist discourse in Sweden in the 1970s different, it looked different from the rest of Europe because Maoism was a huge thing in Sweden, you know, and Chinese communism was celebrated. The Chinese Cultural Revolution, one of the most disastrous movements ever, was highly celebrated in Sweden in the 1970s. Society was supposed to be cleansed from all evil and cleansed from all ugliness, you know, by, by, through this cultural revolution. And of course, the big mistake of the cultural revolution is that it was supposedly a young generation would know better than the older ones. Yeah. The young should go out in the streets and kill the old. And it's completely disastrous. And in Sweden, we had a lot of our cultural um, personalities, I suppose you'd call them. Uh, they took up with this movement. It became a big thing. They got into the institutions and now they rule. Yeah, you had John Muirdal, had all kinds of leftist intellectuals in the 1970s that at least pretended to read some books. But, you know, Mao's little red book was so short and so little that to read it was a lot easier than to go through all the Karl Marx books. Yes. And Swedes are lazy in the sense they don't want to read and study too much. They want to make, take a pose, yeah. take a stand. They want it to look fancy and sexy. They want to be ahead with social status and within the hierarchy. And that's exactly what worked in the Swedish left in the 1970s too. He was totally full of himself. He was fighting pseudo-battle after pseudo-battle. And, uh, and fractured into smaller and smaller sects as well. Yes, exactly. Just, Who all knew just better like than what, anybody else. Just like what's going to happen to the Me Too movement rather soon, or yeah. has already begun here in Sweden. Because it is very effeminate. You have to understand that. It goes back to Rousseau. If there's any heritage you can trace Mao and Maoism back to, that would be Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Not Marx. So what Mao is it about Rousseau? Marx. What is it about Rousseau that makes him so... So dangerous. Okay. Yeah. Rousseau has been blamed for the noble savage. He didn't re even believe in noble savage himself. He never actually used the term. No. Rousseau's idea is that we are born as tabula rasa. Yeah. We're born empty of content. He didn't recognize any categories at all from mono count, but rather said that, no, no, we're born like empty. That also means we can't be trained and educated to anything. Anything that, of course, a dictator wants. Yes, and this suited Swedes perfectly. Yes. Because they always wanted to have the most conformist, consensus-based society where everyone makes the same, thinks the same, says the same, does the same, and looks the same, which might sound like a complete hellhole to anyone else on earth, but in Sweden, it is the national ideal. If you seek safety and consensus in the extreme, you love that idea. Yeah. What arrived in Sweden was a consensus on a large state, a high tax economy. So you were happy to keep the patriarchy, you know, running the commercial export industry because that created provision for the country, as long as the government could control it and tax it as heavily as it wanted. So there was a wide agreement in Sweden on a high tax economy. So the state would be strong. Now, the state is, of course, the ultimate form of the mamilla. 
you know, the breast. Yes. That means everybody feeds from the breast and they cannot get fed anywhere else. You simply make the state the monopoly of supply in a culture. And then, of course, you can turn the state into this thing that you either, as a Maoist said, should be eternally evolving according to certain standards everybody has to follow, or it should just be one and the same thing, which is the conservative view of the state. Like, it should be one and the same thing over time and not change much at all. But it doesn't really matter for the practical implications. You've already created a totalitarian worldview where you believe that everybody wants and is completely dependent on a strong state. And the strong state society stands superior to any other form of government you could possibly have. So the idea that you could have a low tax economy, a strong civil society, and very independent citizens can no longer exist in that kind of society. Exactly. And there's been wide agreement on this in Sweden for the past 40 or 50 years. And it's that a totalitarian to idea. And it has to do with Rousseau because they, yeah. they, they took Rousseau's idea about the tabula rasa and they was like, if this is true, it's perfect for us because we want to create a new man, just like Nazi Germany yes. once did. And it assumes that it's pacifist. Yes. The problem is that what Rousseau eventually led to was Robespierre. And if you look at the French Revolution, the year between 1792 and early 1794, you have for a little more than a year, Robespierre and his Jacobins, they rule France. And it's one of the bloodiest periods in human history. Because what happens is when you take the assumably very effeminate sort of idea that, oh, we should all stay together and we should all become this one thing, one of the same thing, because we're all born empty. So we're all going to fill it with the same form and all be the same, including men and women are going to be identical with each other. Yep. There's no biology to pay attention to. Biology can be completely ignored. Well, that then creates society where if you don't follow that consensus, you have to be killed. Yes. Or yes, in, in Sweden, symbolically killed, which means frozen out from the group. You well, will... we've had death cases now with Me Too in Sweden. And, and what is interesting here that the women who led Me Too in Sweden, they, they, prouded them, they prouded themselves in going out and saying, we don't care if they're innocent men killed in the process. That's a price we have to pay for the overall goal, which is to everybody, make like everybody ev the same. Like every revolutionary at any point in time or place. Especially Rousseauans. Yeah. You have to break a few eggs if you want the omelette. Hitler loved Rousseau. Stalin loved Rousseau. They didn't care about Marx, either one of them. Mao loved Rousseau too. And the ultimate Rousseauian of all was a guy called Paul Polt. He even wrote his PhD on Rousseau at Sorbonne in France before he left France and went back to Cambodia to kill two million people. And he started by killing anybody who wore glasses. He wanted to get all the intelligent people out of the way so he could just completely control his population and then turn him into his own image. Yeah. That is the Rousseauian nightmare. And Rousseau is a brilliant starting point for philosophy, because, for political philosophy, because he, he, he writes incredibly well. He's an excellent writer. He's very, very convincing. He was a great composer. He was multi-talented. He was probably very narcissistic, but he was also flamboyant and very successful socially. And he was admired by a lot of people in, in France and in, in, in England at the time. And, and uh, he lived both in Paris and London, went back and forth. Wherever he was popular, he would be there, right? And Diderot uh, adopted him when he was young and eventually turned against him when he discovered what a monster he had created. But Rousseau's philosophy was the foundation for the worst parts of the French Revolution. But he has been popular ever since. And anybody who doesn't want to read books, who doesn't want to understand ideology in a deep sense, who doesn't want to get to know humans and try to understand how humans actually function, but who wants to ignore all that and jump to conclusions and get out there in the streets and start a bloody revolution, is probably likely to be a Rousseau.
And, and that's what happened here, because we took Turosoa like no other nation, well, apart from maybe, maybe Maoist China. Yes. Yes. Uh, Maoism got very strong in Sweden in the 1970s, and the young Maoists they were very charismatic, and they pretty much stayed in the limelight. You know, they, they dominated media production in Sweden. If you look at Sveriges Radio, which is national radio, Swedish television, Sveriges Television, if you look at Aftonbladet, the biggest Swedish, Swedish daily newspaper, all the journalists who eventually were employed in the 1980s and forward, who were stars at these magazines and these radio and TV stations, were all Maoists when they were younger. And they've kept their values. Yes. The feminist initiative is essentially a, a Mao party dictating that women should rule the world, right? And uh, that's the cultural revolution in China. It was led by Mao's wife. She really? led it. Yeah. And that's when fairy tales become more important than reality. When youth becomes superior to old age and wisdom. And, and when everything that's old is declared as, you know, unwanted or, or, or evil or whatever. And the young and the fresh and the new Without knowledge, the naivety is being celebrated as the future. And this is precisely what happened in Sweden, because what happened was we were pro-Nazi mm -hmm. until 1945, and then mm -hmm. within a week we had to forget an entire culture, creating a huge hole. Then you need a philosophy that says we're all just blank papers, so we can sign anything, and we don't need our real history, we can invent a history. Yeah. So this is what happened. Basically. But you had Gunnar and Alva Myrdal. The main ideologues of Swedish social democracy, they took, they, they had no attention at all to, to biology. No. They read John Dewey and the American pragmatists, but they read them in all the wrong ways. They just interpreted it like an excuse to create a welfare state, a, a, a big state, and, and a big state that would, would be good in a sort of matriarchal way to control society as a whole. And they had ideals for how men and women should become in the society. And there was no escape. But now it becomes interesting because you brought up pragmatism. Yes. Yes. And you're sort of a pragmatist sometimes? I guess I am, yeah. yeah. And also an American pragmatist because you've been reading the American pragmatists. Yes. I really, really like um, uh, Charles Sanders' purse. I think William James is brilliant. I think if you read John Dewey in the correct way, he's also a great thinker. I don't think it arrives in a very good place. I'm not that impressed with Richard Rorty, for example, the 21st century version of it. I think Robert Corrington is better at it. But, you know, the American pragmatist tradition... Is because Richard Rorty, he falls into the, the well of uh, postmodernism. Yeah, he does arrive with postmodernism. That's his mistake. Yeah, because he becomes self-referential all the time, right? Well, he does. And this is the problem with postmodernism. Postmodernism starts in a brilliant way. It starts in the 1930s with the Frankfurt School, which is a Jewish school of philosophy in Germany. Interestingly, of course, in the 1930s, meaning all the thinkers within the Frankfurt School either died or had to escape from Germany. Yeah. And, and some of them were absolutely brilliant, like, like a young genius like uh, Walter Benjamin, who died on the Spanish-French border in a real tragedy. He, he was convinced the Nazis would get him, although they weren't even close. And no. therefore, he killed himself to avoid being caught by the Nazis. Yeah. So he but, was smart, but not that smart. Exactly. <laughs> you know, tragedies are often like that. You know? but, but Walter Benjamin was there, Horkheimer, Adorno. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a whole school of great thinkers in Germany in the 1930s of Jewish origin called the Frankfurt School. They were the first real prominent critics of, mod of modernism. And what they criticized in modernism was that it was utopian vision that could go ultimately wrong. It was probably heading in the wrong direction because they saw Hitler and Stalin as, you know, the ultimate outcome of modernism. And in a way they were right, because if, if modernism starts with Immanuel Kant, Immanuel Kant didn't really have an ideal of where we're heading. He didn't really understand the value of having a true phallic vision you should follow. He just believed modernism in itself 
rationality in itself would solve all the problems mankind were confronted with. So he was early and social democrat. And this wasn't entirely true then? No, it wasn't entirely true. He, he loved the French Revolution a bit too much. He didn't see that if you got the wrong vision, if, if, if you got a vision of abjection, if you, if, if you unify the people, unify the tribe around an object of hatred, you're heading in the wrong way. So there wasn't really an understanding of that with Kant, and that's also the problem you go to Karl Marx. You don't ever have to doubt that Karl Marx had good intentions and that he saw the power of the proletariat in its creativity. And he was probably right about that. And he hated what he called, you know, the trash proletariat. He hated those people who were out in the streets had no focus at all, didn't know where they were going at all. And actually, Karl Marx hates utopian socialism all the way through his endeavor, with one exception, and that's the fact that he tragically signed a book called The Communist Manifesto with his friend Engels. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is where I can't be a Marxist. I can't believe in the communist revolution or the communist manifesto at all, because it is a phallic vision that's definitely going in the wrong direction from the very beginning. And what is the difference? Because I'm inherently afraid of utopian visions in general. I think that as soon as you try to achieve a utopia, blood will flow in the streets. Well, that's because I know you you're not supposed to reach the utopia. It's a direction. And here comes the problem with postmodernism. Postmodernism started in the 1930s as a very valuable critique of modernism. And as long as modernism dominated the agenda, this was a very valuable criticism of modernism. The problem is that when you arrive at the late 1970s, 1980s, modernism is dead and over. Then postmodernism fills that whole vacuum and then becomes the ideology, which in itself doesn't have any critique. It doesn't, there's nobody criticizing postmodernism from within because it's so obsessed with criticizing something that no longer exists. Not understanding, it has become its own absolute ideology. This is the state we were writing for the past 30 or 40 years. And we see it everywhere in society today in what we call value relativism. You see it every time you go into discussion and somebody says that it's important who speaks, not what is being said. Because if it's important who speaks, not what's being said, that also means that what, what is being said is not important. That is true, but, but... It's a very effeminate discussion. It's like a bunch of women who meet like after work and just have a babbling, babbling discussion, which essentially is focused on their testosterone in their body turning into estrogen so they can go home and be sweet wives or whatever. So, so we have these sort of chats in the social community, especially in the inner circuit of women, there's a lot of chatting going on all the time, which is basically just a hormone redistribution. And it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not, right? If that then becomes the social discourse, so it's no longer a friendly little chat between friends, mostly female, and it's no longer a fairy tale storytelling to children, to entertain the children, where it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not. It's, it's, just, it's just fairy tales. But this becomes public discourse. Yes. Meaning that anybody is allowed to say anybody, especially if they're a victim, especially if they haven't been hurt in the past, then they should have the priority and be able to talk before anybody else. But whether what, whether what they say is true or not is, is, is completely unimportant. So you just get a lot of babble, of which a lot is slander and a lot is lies. And a lot is just, you know, nonsense. And that fills up the entire discourse, which means that if somebody finally starts speaking the truth in this discourse, that person will be attacked. And that has happened to you recently. It Sweden. happens all the time in our contemporary society. People hate when, they speak, when the truth is being spoken because actually that survives as a message. It, it stands the test of time, which of course nonsensical bubble doesn't. And also it's not pleasing to the ear. 
to hear that you're personally you... responsible for your horrible existence in a completely meaningless and callous universe. Right? If you've only heard fairy tales your whole life, and if you train to only speak out of fairy tales yourself, meaning you don't have to study anything, you don't have to get an education, you don't have to understand critical thinking, there should be no self-criticism at all. But any babble that you babble is equally valued with anything that somebody experienced says. Okay, if that is public discourse, which it is today, it's incredibly dangerous because the quality of the discourse falls to absolutely nothing and gets really, really dangerous because the voices should be heard. The learned voices, the voices that actually know something, the voices that speak from vision and strategy and where are we heading, what should we do, those voices are not heard any longer. So that's the problem with postmodernism in general, yes. then, because it becomes this value relativistic universe. But doesn't that sort of apply very well to Sweden? And, and hasn't Sweden always been sort of... Why do you think feminism is a state ideology? This is exactly how the inner circuit conversations are different from the outer circuit conversations. The inner circuit has many qualities. But one of its problems is the discourse in the inner circuit. Essentially, women are sitting in a village talking to each other. It's just gossip, you know, and it, it's fairy tales and it's little storytelling and it's, it's like new age religion, for example. Everything should be heard. Everything should be allowed. There should be no differentiation between any statements. All statements are equally valid, exactly like the Me Too movement. It doesn't matter whether it concerns a rape, whether it concerns some other form of harassment or just a bad word somebody uttered. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Truth or fiction cannot be separated any longer. This is like a nightmare when you move outside of that circle where you can allow for that conversation because that conversation is basically just a testing of social positions, testing the hierarchy, for example, between women in the inner circuit. This is the babble in a restaurant over a glass of white wine early in the Friday evening before you go to the nightclub. Because that conversation is fine between women and children and it's fine within the inner circuit. It's fine in a hairdressing salon. But when you move that discourse into the public sphere and call this the political discourse and say you have to conduct politics the same way, it is disastrous. Especially if you want to make it policy. Because yes. then, it, then you have... What they believe is basically words don't mean anything. Exactly. At the same time, words mean everything because of microaggressions. So words can be like weapons. Yeah, well, what means something is tonality. Etiquette. The smelling salts are always nearby. Yeah. Oh, did you hear what she just said? You know, it's that kind of reaction to things. And you have the right and something not to react to the substance of the argument because you can't argue with that because you can't even tell the difference between truth and fiction. So you're afraid of anybody actually proclaiming a truth. And if they do, you re react aggressively. Say, Your truth is not worth more than mine. Well, maybe it is. Let's test. No, no, no. They don't want to do that. So they will accuse you for the tonality you use. So especially but, if but you behave like a man. Said. Exactly. Not for the substance of the argument, but for the tonality of the argument. And this is what decadence ultimately is. John Sedekist and I call it a decorationist society in our work. And it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. This is, for example, Versailles right before the French Revolution. 25,000 aristocrats lived in a big castle with a constantly ongoing fashion party, essentially. 
with smelling salts everywhere. And it was, everything was about etiquette and tonality, you know, and, and, and nothing was about the arguments at all. Because what would you talk about if you were an aristocrat living from state money in a huge castle just with an ongoing party all the time? You, I mean, if you actually were confronted with the fact that nothing you ever did was productive, if you were confronted with the fact that you were just infantile, like a big fat baby. I'd kill myself. You'd kill yourself, exactly. Yeah. So you had to pretend something important was going on. That's exactly what public discourse looks like today when it's postmodernist. It is pretending it's actually debating something important, when a reality is just a constant hierarchical positioning that's going on. And, th so, so, and, so, and so this you, happens in Sweden all the time, because all ev the time. everything becomes a meta discussion. It's completely as, childish. As soon yeah. as I come out with an argument, it could be Twitter, it could be in a, in a private company, someone will start discussing the wording. Yeah. That's the first thing that happens. And they're uh, discussing your right to even open your mouth. Yes, and, and then there's no discussion because no one wants to discuss what I just said. They no, want they to can't. how it was said. They, they're not educated. They don't have access to those tools. They're young and they're uneducated. So they will refuse to go into that area where actually truth finding is important. The thing is this, when you go into the world of politics, then if you're going to run a government, if you're going to run it according to the rule of law, truth is everything. It is the quality of your argument. Are you moving the argument towards more truth? Are you revealing deeper and more truths with your argument? Is it scientifically verifiable, for example? That must be the key to any sort of discourse in, in the in sort of public discourse that actually concerns our society as a whole. You, you can talk to certain, you can talk in a certain way in the kindergarten to a bunch of children. And you can talk in a certain way with your friends when you just want to babble, you know, have some time off. And it's not too serious. But if you think that kind of discourse actually would work in the political discourse, that's incredibly dangerous. So I, you know, I, I point this out constantly. Whenever I'm attacked for my tonality or my etiquette, I just go straight to it, go even, I, I disobey the tonality and the etiquette even more to get the point across that I want my argument to be valued. Is it true or not? Is it true or false? And if it's false, I'm perfectly happy to change my mind. Then give me an argument that there's a bigger truth or deeper truth than what I just argued. That's but, what I want to achieve in a debate. I want to learn from it. Yes, but now you live in a value-relative society. So anything you say, I mean, don't you see the problem here? Yes, I do. So postmodernism taking over meant that the discourse in the afternoons in the inner circuit, which is essentially sort of positioning, a power game, has now become understood to be all discourse. So I don't know what it is, but maybe the feminists have never been in the outer circle. They don't understand that the hunting team would die if they didn't stay with the truth. Or you cannot build a skyscraper unless you stay with the truth. It's perfectly impossible to shape the materials on which you build the skyscraper to create a sustainable skyscraper at all, unless you know truth. You have to find the truth. So you scientifically study the materials you're going to build. You have drawings that you have to follow all the way through that are mathematically, geometrically correct. Otherwise, you cannot build the building. So as soon as you drag the little boys out and have a rite of passage and then you put them into a team, the first thing you teach them is you have to stay with the truth. And the institutions we build through patriarchy in our society, for example, law and order. is all about truth. It's all about truth. And then value relativism, postmodern says there is no final truth. There are just truths, meaning that anybody who speaks, their truth is equally valuable than anybody else's statements. And the reality is that, of course, statements are not equally valid. A statement of lie has, doesn't have the value that a statement of truth has. This is where we get in Sweden because we have a, let's call it a culture of tolerance. 
Yes. Uh, or at least that's what they call it. It's not it's very feminine. Uh, yeah, it's because not tolerant be- in the least. Exactly. Uh, but, but it's called a cultural tolerance. Because when women sit and talk to each other, nobody's allowed to say that somebody else is wrong. They're just allowed to add to the conversation. So you say, oh, that was very interesting to hear. Oh, by the way, we have this and this and this. So they constantly expand discourse, they expand it into some more and more statements in there, of which very few actually are truthful in any whatsoever. I have it's a, just a, a perfect example for you. It's not to hurt somebody else. So the way you do with women is they have passive aggression. So if somebody said something very inappropriate, the way to attack it is not to attack it openly and say that I don't believe what you just said. No, no, no. You backstab that person. Well, you remember the leader of the feminist party here, who was also one of the founders of the feminist party. She once said when Sweden uh, was discussing what happened under Taliban rule in Afghanistan uh, to women and girls, the leader of the feminist party in Sweden says, well, the Taliban isn't much different from what is going on here in Sweden. Yeah. Which is... Ridiculous. Completely absurd. Well... And no one called her on her bullshit. No. It was amazing. Yeah. Because women don't call each other on the bullshit. They backstab each other. That's what they do at best. Yeah. Or otherwise they let that but woman... You end, but the you woman who's the most powerful goes you, on lying yes, but sentence you, after sentence. Yes, but you end up in this incredibly relative situation where the oppression of women in Afghanistan and the Taliban is exactly what's going on here with free education and uh, good positions in government companies for women... No difference. Well, the thing is this. If you are in the inner circuit, you're not interested in the outer circuit, meaning you're not interested in other countries. So if, if, if Afghanistan was not part of the power game that was going on here, she could say anything about Afghanistan. Yes, but... Make any comparison. As long as it served her interest in controlling Swedish society. So let's take another contradiction then. Because mm-hmm. we've taken in a lot of Afghan refugees, mm-hmm. most of them from Iran, apparently. Uh, via Iran. Via yeah. Iran, yes. So we've taken in a lot of them. Most of them are young men, mm-hmm. right? So in certain age groups in Sweden now, we're approaching a, I don't know if the word is gender parity, but I, I think we have 120 men per every 100 women, mm-hmm. which makes for uh, an imbalance in the system, Yes, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, she says she's not interested in, in other countries. Or you say they're not interested in other countries, but they really want these Afghan youth male youths to stay here now because we've had a movement here right mm-hmm. of women older women older swedish women taking in a lot of young men who they say are children but they're not exactly children because they're 18 plus something like that truth is not that important to feminists remember that uh, yeah no I, and I, your I, age is actually uh, uh, you know a question of truth if you make up that you're 18 or 23 or 15 rather than being 15 or 18 or 23, it's an enormous difference. But it doesn't really matter, right? In a society that's relativistic. And also a society should be where equally. they don't have a real phallus, and now they're starting to import phalluses. Well, they are. They might be in for a surprise, though. <laughs> Why? Because they think the Afghan men are going to be like Swedish men and castrated. And they're not. Well, we'll see. We will see. We don't know. No. I wouldn't be judgmental on that. You know, and, you know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. See how it goes. It's just really rare with a society with so many men compared to so many women. If there is a gender imbalance that we're used to, it's more women than men. Because there were more men dying in the outer circuit than there were women dying in the inner circuit. Women essentially died from childbirth if they died at all. Men died from military conflict. They died during hunting. They died for all kinds of things. And they willingly gave their lives to the tribe. They were trained to think that way. And that's what men are. If, if a man finds his purpose, he's even willing to die for it. A woman would never be that. 
A woman would possibly be willing to die for her own child because that's her central purpose. She wouldn't be, a woman would never die for an idea. Well, it has happened once or twice that a woman has died for an idea. But they have the capacity. Ve- they yeah. have the capacity. They have the capacity to go into the phallic. That's why I'm saying the phallic and the matrical. I'm not saying the masculine and the feminine. Women can go into the phallic when that's needed. Men can go in the matrical when that is needed. So if it's a certain lack in a society, in a certain position you are, and you can go into these modes. And especially if you're a gay man or a lesbian, you're probably likely to go into the opposite genderist mode. That's precisely why you are a gay or a lesbian. But that, so that capacity exists. The nomadic tribe is plastic. We were capable of doing things that were outside of our nature, but only temporarily. You know, we weren't transgender or anything like that, all of us. 95% of people are very happy with being either men or women. And very you, happy, so. Yes, and most of us don't question it that much. Exactly. I mean, there's a period in childhood where you fantasize what it would be like to be the other sex, but uh, usually passes quite quickly. And you can temporarily quickly. do it by dressing in women's clothes, getting fucked in the ass by a friend or something during sex. That happens. But it's temporarily and still theatrical. It's not your real you, right? So the, the, the androgynous has a role in the original tribe. It's the go-between between matriarchy and patriarchy. It's the go-between between inner circuit and outer circuit. These two circuits cannot communicate without the androgynous being there. And the androgynous is also something that does exist quite often at the outer outskirts of the outer circuit in communication with other tribes. Because you find the androgynous gene, gene you find it in the go-betweens. We call it the shamanic caste in our work. But it's never more than 5% of the population that we find there. And they have, a, they, have, they, have, they have a certain service they need to supply to the tribe. And that's like the gel in between the matrical and, and the phallic. I understand. Or at least I think I understand. But so... Back to Sweden yeah, and our special, special little situation here. Because now uh, you say you don't know what will happen in Sweden, but do you care to speculate? Well, it's all a material reality. We kept giving birth to children. As long as you give birth to children, the matrical structure is still there. The inner circuit is very stable in that sense. It will not disappear. We actually have to literally stop giving birth to children for women to lose the power they have after all. So the, the women control the inner circuit, and that has existed all along. The problem was that the outer circuit sort of disappeared because we had the army, we eventually had the factories, we had places where we put men at work in teams of other men, and we had male leaders who led the you know, older men who led the younger men. And as long as we have that structure there, the outer circuit very much exists. Now the outer circuit is limited to a small elite of men, who work like engineers and, and, and have other jobs, you know, at the highest end of the social hierarchy. And they're very much on the outskirts. I mean, say you go to uh, Arlanda Airport outside Stockholm and you see Swedes who travel abroad to do business, 90% of them are going to be men. This is where basically where men have gone, this is where men have gone who still have a lot of power and influence. So the patriarchy that we have in our society today has left politics, is moving out of the sort of traditional public arena. It's no longer involving debate. Yeah, but it, if you look it, at the... It ignores things like me too. It stays in industry, it stays in the high end of the economy where it achieves what, what it set out to do. But it's pretty quiet about the sort of public arena side where the inner circuit has taken over. Which is why the political discourse has now become that we should all become women essentially. Yeah, and I agree with this. What I'm saying is Look at the three decades ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at a point in time now where we have had huge migration since the 70s. We're yeah. a multicultural society, in a, uh, in a sense at least. And uh, we've done the f- gender feminism and we have no army. Mm-hmm. And it's all 
coming crashing down right now, right? Mm -hmm. So feminism is finding itself in a sort of a cul-de-sac mm -hmm. because of its relativistic nature. Mm -hmm. The immigration policy is going, well, it's not going that well. Mostly, I think, because Sweden is a very, very complex system and we have been taking in people with a much lower degree of education and we can't really... Uh, as you would say, socialize them into this very We complex... already have a male-dominated underclass in our society that finds no work any longer because we have closed down the factories and we closed down the military. This is what we usually put the 19-year-old guys to shape them into men before. So the real rite of passage in our society, if nothing else would have happened, we put them through the military service and they come out as real men who women could marry and have sex with. That's gone. Yes. And if we then bring in even more young men in our country who don't have the education, the qualifications and the social know-how to go straight into the new male upper class and belong to the patriarchy that's still strong, for example, in industry and in finance and in technology, well, where are we going to put them then? Put them at the very bottom of society. We already have tons of Swedes. And these men at the very bottom of society, something John Sedeckvist and I call the consumptariat. The consumptariat is a new underclass, and it's also male-dominated, just like the upper class. It's the middle class where women are located. And the new underclass are men, play computer games, get drunk on alcohol, take tons of drugs, and at worst, they go into criminality and gangs. So, on the one hand... And they're going to grow, and there are going to be more of them, and they're going to be very, very problematic. Yeah, so on the one hand, we have uh, a new gangster society coming yes. up. Yes. We're basically Chicago in the early 10s or 20s. Yes. Yes. Uh, and on the other hand, we have men who won't procreate because women don't want... We give them want... pills. We put them on medication at school. They can't sit still in these huge school classes. So we give them diagnoses. ADHD the, then. Yes. The ultimate form of infantilization of large population is a widespread use of psychiatric diagnoses. And it's a huge tragedy. Because once you get a psychiatric diagnosis, you're a victim forever. And once you become a victim, you're your own enemy. Your life is nothing but a race to the bottom. So you will find new problems that can be identified as psychiatric diagnoses to have an excuse to stay on the pills. And women do this increasingly, men do it on a massive scale. What we're doing with men, though, is we're giving them these pills already in their teens, saying there's something wrong with them because we have a female idea of what men should be. Yeah. Men uh, are different from women. Boys are different from girls. And, you know, boys have to go to school and be respectful of being boys. And we have to treat them as boys. And we have to understand that these are boys who eventually become young men and then become men. And unless we can find a way to do that and let them be who they are, it's going to be tragic on a massive scale. Those are not very happy words. And I think we'll take a break with those words. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Aryan and the Jew. You have been listening to me. My name is Aaron Flam, and mostly to this gentleman. His name is Alexander Bard. So thank you so much. I hope you keep listening and spread the word. You can always support us on Patreon or swish us at 0768-943737. 0768-943737. Thank you, and until next time.